This is the Heartland Daily Podcast. Hello, listeners of the Heartland Daily Podcast. For today's episode, we're posting an episode of Freedom Adventure, the podcast by David Forsyth, who had Heartland's Tim Benson on to talk about school choice and energy policy. We hope you enjoy. Tim Benson explains why we need school choice and more oil and gas production. If you hold your breath waiting for some politician to set you free... They are going to call you Mr. Blue. Take control of your own freedom, pursue happiness, and live your dream. Start your freedom adventure now. Hello, Freedom Family. Today's Freedom Quote. The Constitution only gives people the right to pursue happiness. You have to catch it yourself, Benjamin Franklin. Tim Benson joined the Heartland Institute as a policy analyst for Government Relations Department. He is also the host of the Heartland Institute podcast, Illiteracy Books with Benson. Hello, Tim. Welcome to the Freedom Venture podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Oh, you're most welcome. Uh, Tim, what is the School Choice Now Act? So the School Choice Now Act is a bill that was introduced in the Senate by uh, Tim Scott of South Carolina and Lamar Alexander of Tennessee. They were the co-sponsors. What it would do, it would basically repurpose 10% of the emergency funding in the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act, which was the big uh, coronavirus uh, relief package. So it would take $7 billion of that in, uh, and put it in a one-time emergency funding to scholarship granting organizations in each state. And uh, these organizations would be authorized to use the one-time funding to provide families with direct educational assistance. So that would include uh, private school tuition and homeschooling expenses. And if passed, um, the bill would provide the single largest monetary boost for education choice in American history. And um, would also, besides that one-time emergency funding, it would also create $5 billion in annual funding for uh, state-level tax credit scholarship programs, which would allow qualifying families to pay for tuition and fees at private and parochial schools. And uh, the, match for, the match for this on the, uh, from School Choice Now Act would be uh, dollar for dollar. The tax credit mm. match. Mm. Okay, and what are TCS programs? TCS programs; uh, those are uh, tax credit scholarship programs, uh, like I just said. So they basically what they do is they allow taxpayers to relief to receive full or partial tax credits when they donate to nonprofits that provide uh, private school scholarships. So the eligible taxpayers can include both businesses and individuals, and uh, so basically the business and the individual uh, donates money to these. Um, to these programs, they receive the tax credit, um, usually dollar for dollar, but sometimes not. And then the uh, scholarship funding organizations that uh, run these uh, programs then distribute this, these donated funds to um, 
most of the tax credit scholarship programs are for low-income kids. And uh, so they distribute the funds to families, low-income families, for them to use uh, to get their kids out of a public school, out of their neighborhood public school, and send them to either a private school uh, or a parochial school or even uh, another uh, public school outside of their school district. Mm. And, Tim, are TCS students more likely to enroll in four-year colleges? Well, uh, yeah, that's what the literature suggests uh, so far. Um, so here in Florida, we have the, uh, the Tax Credit Scholarship Program. Uh, that's, that's the name of it. It's the nation's largest uh, school choice program. It has more than uh, 108 or 109,000 students enrolled at this point. And uh, there was a study published um, 2019 last year by the Urban Institute, which is more of a, I guess you call it like a center-left uh, think tank. And uh, they found that uh, children who enrolled in Florida's uh, tax credit scholarship program um, in elementary and middle school, if they enrolled in the, in the program in elementary or middle school, uh, they were 12% more likely to attend college than their public school peers, uh, while those who enrolled while they were in high school were 19% more likely to attend college than their public school peers. And uh, students uh, who enrolled in elementary or middle school were about 10% more likely to graduate with a bachelor's degree than their public school peers. And uh, those numbers rose to about 20% for, um, for those entering the Florida Tax Credit uh, Scholarship Program in high school. And uh, this Urban Institute study didn't just look at Florida. It also looked at uh, Milwaukee's uh, voucher program, uh, the Milwaukee Parental Choice Program, which is the uh, oldest school choice program in the country. It was established in 1990 and has about uh, about 29,000 part- participating students now. Um, so this Urban Institute report found that uh, ninth grade um, Milwaukee Parental Choice Program students were 7% more likely to enroll in college than their public school peers, and then students starting in grades three through eight in the program were 11% more likely to enroll in college than their peers in public schools. And these kids that enrolled earlier in the program in grades three through eight were also uh, about 38% more likely to graduate college than their than their peers in public schools. And uh, Tim, do public schools also benefit from these programs? Uh, yeah, uh, they certainly do. Um, there have been, uh, to my knowledge, 27 studies on whether private school choice programs uh, have an effect on, te- on test scores on students who remain in public schools. And of these 27 program, uh, 27 studies, excuse me, uh, 25 have found a positive impact on scores. Uh, one found no, uh, just one found no impact on scores, and only one found a, a negative impact on scores. And the latest study, which was a basically a working paper uh, released earlier this year from the National Bureau of Economic Research, and this one, again, was looking at Florida's tax credit scholarship program. Um, it found that students attending public schools who face more competition from private schools uh, util- utilizing the uh, tax credit scholarship program, uh, these public schools saw their test scores uh, and suspension rates improve and their absenteeism dis- uh, decrease. Um, and especially sh- especially so with uh, students from comparatively lower socioeconomic backgrounds and those students that the lower income students were the ones that most were most positively affected in the public schools. Hmm. Tim, do these programs uh, offer quality education inexpensively? Yeah, uh, again, that's what the, the research is, is pointing to. There's been uh, quite a few studies on this. 
over the last uh, 10, 15 years. There's uh, 55 uh, that I know of that uh, study the fiscal effects on school choice programs. And 49 found that these programs generated a net savings for taxpayers. And then there were four that found these programs were cost neutral and just two studies that estimated that a program generated net costs. Uh, but there's one study in particular, um, it's more of like a uh, survey study. So uh, there's a school choice um, uh, advocacy organization, EdChoice. Uh, they're out of Indianapolis. Uh, they used to be known as the Friedman uh, Foundation. And um, they released a study in 2016 estimating the fiscal effects of the country's 10 largest tax credit scholarship programs. So Florida's program and a few others. Uh, and they found the, the tax credit scholarship programs saved state government, state and local taxpayers, and school districts anywhere between $1.7 and $3.4 billion through 2014, which was the last year they had data available. Uh, so in other words, these programs saved uh, anywhere from between $1,750 to $3,000 per student. And the savings in the last school year they, alone that they studied, 2013-2014, uh, which is again the last year available. The, the this ranged from savings of 320 million to 580 million, and they did a similar study on voucher programs that they published in 2018. And again, the same thing. Uh, the they found these programs generated a cumulative net savings to state and local budgets of 3.2 billion dollars, I believe, through fiscal year 2015. Which, uh, if you break that out per student, it's a 3,400 uh, savings per student. How, how do we benefit from uh, increasing competition? Well, uh, the evidence shows it. So increasing competition for public schools basically forces those schools out of their complacent manner and you know makes them buckle down more, makes them be more responsive to the parents of the children who are attending that school um, before these uh, school choice programs were in existence and charter schools were in existence. Uh, before that, you know, where children had to attend um, their neighborhood school because it was the only option or the other private options were out of reach financially. Uh, these schools didn't have to be responsive to the parents or the students. So, you know, those kids were going to be there uh, no matter how poorly those schools performed or how poorly those teachers performed or the administrators performed. And now what we're seeing is with these choice programs, um, Many low-income parents had the opportunity to shop around, find a school that's more conducive to their kids, and uh, that puts pressure on the public schools to uh, do a better job of meeting the parents' needs and meeting the child's needs. And are students of private schools less likely to have drug and alcohol abuse and violence problems? Yeah. Um, there's there's not as much research on this as there is on um, other areas having to do with school choice, but... Um, so far, it suggests that uh, students of private schools are, you know, less likely than their peers in public schools to experience uh, alcohol abuse, or bullying, drug use, um, fighting at school, gang activity at school, uh, racial tension at school. Um, you know, they're, they're less likely to have crimes committed against them, like theft or vandalism, or you know, uh, being threatened with a weapon, something like that. Um, and there's one study out. Um, it's the only one that I know of, uh, that's looked into this, uh, lately. Um, it's called the effects of school choice on mental health. This was, uh, 
Corey DeAngelis, who's a uh, kind of a buddy of mine. He works at the Reason Foundation, used to be at Cato. Um, he found that there's a strong causal link suggesting that private school choice programs improve the mental health of participating students just because they're in an environment um, where they feel more comfortable, um, you know, spending the day and that, that, uh, that calming effect is, uh, has having an effect on their, uh, on their mental health in a positive way. Mm-hmm. And how has uh, COVID-19 affected private schools? Uh, uh, pretty badly. Um, yeah, it, it hasn't, it's been a really tough year for the private school. So, uh, Cato Institute's doing, uh, keeping a pretty good track of this. Uh, they have a little website on it. They found so far there's been 107 private schools that have permanently closed in the wake of the coronavirus. You know, many of these schools have been, you know, on a precarious financial footing, you know, even before the, the pandemic. And so, you know, they're forced to keep tuition as low as possible so they can remain viable against, you know, public schools, which are quote unquote free. And so this financial model, you know, is proving really difficult for them to sustain as, you know, this COVID outbreak has led to school and church slowdowns. And hence, because of that, you're having big fundraising drops and, you know, the families who are paying tuition uh, because lots of people are out of work and everything's all up in the air. They're facing their own financial problems so those 107 schools they that have closed enrolled uh, over 16,000 students. And so a lot of those kids are going to be returning to public schools this year. And the problem with that is um, that's going to increase the cost to the public. And uh, Cato estimates this is going to be um, over uh, $250 million in extra costs to the taxpayers. And of course, um, you know, I think 90, 90 of those 107 schools that are closing, uh, the private schools that are closing are Catholic schools. And, um, you know, Catholic schools have this, you know, proud tradition of serving low income and minority and immigrant communities and, you know, forming young people academically and civically and spiritually. Uh, you know, I'm a, I'm a Catholic school product. You know, they, um, they always used to, my Catholic school, Catholic um, grade school and high school, I mean, it wasn't just Catholic kids. We had, um, you know, there was obviously a smattering of Protestant kids that went to the school. Um, you know, we had a couple Jewish Jewish kids. We had a few, uh, there were two um, sisters that were uh, Muslims at the school. And, you know, the uh, Catholic schools, their philosophy is, you know, they don't, they don't teach kids because they're Catholic. Um, you know, they teach kids because we're Catholic. And, uh, so that's their mission. And so in a lot of these, um, neighborhoods, um, where these Catholic schools are, are low income neighborhoods and, you know, minority, minority majority neighborhoods and losing these schools is, uh, you know, a tough break. And, um, you know, so, I mean, if this goes on, um, if more and more schools close, it could be a huge problem. Um, just to throw some numbers at you. So if 10%, of private school students return to public schools this fall. Uh, the price for that would reach uh, $6.7 billion and uh, $3.3 billion of that uh, would fall on states that are already reeling from decreased tax revenues because of uh, coronavirus. And, um, 
you know, if you bump that number up to say 30% of the private school students were, you know, couldn't attend their, their private schools anymore, then, uh, and they had to go back to public schools that would, um, that would eat up another $20 billion, which, um, at the state level, uh, is a significant, significant amount of money. Yeah, that's pretty tragic. Um, Tim, changing the subject, uh, does the oil and gas industry provide high-paying jobs for non-college graduates? Yeah, um, that's well. That's what's being reported, at least uh, according to. Uh, there's a union, uh, the North America's Building Trade Union, the NABTU. It's a. It's basically a giant federation across the U.S. and Canada. Uh, you know, 14 different uh, building and construction construction unions. And they just released uh, two analyses of this uh, last month. They um, conducted lots and lots of uh, in-depth interviews with union members. They did focus groups. Um, they did a 1,600 question, or excuse me, 1,600 person online survey with rank and file. And uh, what these rank and file guys are saying is that uh, oil and natural gas industry construction jobs, um, whether they're union or non-union, um, are providing higher pay. Uh, they're providing better health benefits. They're providing better pension benefits compared to other industries, and uh, especially so um, for uh, guys in those fields without college degrees. Mm-hmm. And Tim, are the career opportunities in renewables as good? Yeah, um, that's again. This is what's being self-reported by these union members, and uh, so they're saying compared to renewable energy positions. Uh, these construction workers saying that the oil and natural gas industry provides better careers, again, in you know terms of pay, uh, you know, uh, project duration, uh, project consistency, um, you know, provides better skill development, um, you know, through project variety, that sort of thing. There was actually a pretty interesting quote um, in one of those uh, analyses uh, from a union electrician uh, regarding um, the difference between skill development and oil and natural gas versus renewables. I just... I'd just like to read this to you real quick. It's just a little short quote. So he says, um, in refineries, there's always new technology in production. Uh, wind, uh, you only have wind. Solar, you only have solar. There's not anything really new that you can do with it other than just it just runs a cell or it blows the wind turbine blades. But, but lots of different things in the petrochemical world change radically. And with those changes, uh, they have to do lots of upgrades to those units. So there's, um, there's more skill development. Um, Again, there's you know a different, uh, more variety of jobs, more consistency as well with jobs, uh, and the duration of the jobs is longer. So this is what this is what the the union, the union members rank and file are uh, reporting to the to their higher ups. And are oil and gas sources environmentally safe? Yeah, uh, extremely. Um, there's been numerous studies over the last decade that have borne that out, um, especially with the rise of uh, hydraulic fracturing and fracking over the last decade or so. Um, you know, whether it's air quality, uh, water quality, you know, the effect on human health, um, the the evidence that these um, that these are systemic pollutants. These industries, it just isn't there. Um, you know, occasionally um, something might pop up, but there's no systemic, uh, patterns between, uh, oil and gas development and, and any of these sort of things. Um, you know, I don't want to suggest that there's, you know, there's zero risk associated with, uh, you know, with fracking or other oil and gas operations, but, um, you know, those risks, those risks are, 
you know, really small compared to the enormous benefits that uh, these fossil fuels provide the country. And it's a, it's a tremendous, tremendous benefit. Not to mention mining for uh, precious metals for the renewables isn't exactly environmentally safe. No, no, those are extremely, uh, yeah, extremely dirty. A lot of those rare earth minerals, um, and they're found in areas of the world that aren't particularly particularly um, friendly to us, such as China or places where environmental standards um, aren't as high uh, as in the Western world. So uh, the places where they're getting, you know, digging these things out of the ground, uh, you know, the, the safeguards and the standards aren't there. And um, yeah, it's uh, and just to, to ramp to ramp up uh, renewables to the point where um, a lot of the environments want to get it where we're basically at, you know, no fossil fuel, zero, zero emissions, zero net emissions. Uh, the amount of rare earth minerals you would need to build the solar panels and the, and the, the wind farms uh, to make that possible, which honestly, it really isn't possible anyway, but that's a whole different subject. Um, the amount of, yeah, just the amount of minerals you'd have to pull out of the ground is, uh, astonishing. Yeah. And people think we get rid of gas and oil right now on living on planet delusional. Yeah. <laughs> so Tim, uh, do you think opening up the Alaska national wildlife refuge for drilling is a good idea? Oh yeah, uh, absolutely. So, I mean, the Trump administration, what they're, basically doing is just making good on the promise uh, the Jimmy Carter administration um, made when they created ANWR in the first place, which was that, um, you know, they would allow a small part of the, of the coastal plain in, in the park to be developed with, uh, you know, appropriate environmental safeguards, you know, using the best available technologies, you know, which is what they're going to do now. Um, you know, so affordable energy, you know, oil, and natural gas, uh, even coal and clean coal to a degree. They, these are the fossil fuels are the key to you know, cheap fossil fuels are the key to productivity growth and across the country and the production of, you know, virtually all goods and services. And so uh, for American families, um, you know, uh, during this sort of economically uh, unstable time, you know, uh, spending less money on energy means saving more money to, you know, pay a mortgage, pay a rent, you know, for a car payment to spend on food and clothing, to spend on a retirement fund, to, you know, spend on to pay off their student loans, to spend to take a vacation or take the kids to Disney world, something like that. It's more money they can, uh, you know, more money they can save for any day. Um, so making sure we have abundant fossil fuels, uh, make sure, uh, and, abundant, you know, oil and natural gas energy, make sure that the, uh, American families have uh, more money to spend. And, uh, there's no reason, honestly, this shouldn't have been done 40 years ago, but, um, you know, uh, better late than never. Right. That's right. And Tim, what was your biggest aha freedom moment? Uh, biggest aha freedom moment. Um, that's a good question. I guess it would probably be, um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, my first job, um, 15 years old, you know, bagging groceries. And, uh, this was in a state that was not, uh, right to work. 
at the time. So um, I get hired, uh, you know, part-time, just an after-school job. You know, I, I think I was working 15, 20 hours a week, maybe at the most. Um, and I'm filling out the paperwork and with the, you know, assistant store manager or whatever, and he's giving me all the paperwork. All right, fill this out, fill this out, fill this out. Okay. And he's like, okay, and here's your union paperwork. Please fill this out. And I was like, union paperwork. And he's like, yeah, uh, that we're represented by the, I, I can't even remember what union it was, um, some grocery workers union or something like that. And uh, I was just like, well, um, what a, I don't want to join the union. I don't want to fill that out. And he was like, well, if, if you don't join the union, then you can't work here or you can't work at a grocery store. Uh, basically in the state. And so I was like, well, okay. Um, so I filled out the paperwork, became a card carrying union member for again, whatever stupid union it was. And, um, so my first paycheck, uh, <laughs> um, after the, uh, uh, so remember I'm only, this was, uh, let's see, probably 1996, 1997, somewhere around there. So I'm basically making minimum wage, which at the time was, around four or five bucks an hour, I believe. Um, and I'm only working, you know, like I said, 15, 20 hours a week. Um, my first paycheck, I'm all excited to get my first paycheck. Uh, cause you know, I'll have some money to spend and some money to put away and all that stuff and, uh, get my paycheck. And there's like $50 taken out of the paycheck for union initiation. Um, it was like a union initiation fee, something like that. And then the actual, that was on top of the actual dues, uh, themselves, which ran another, um, probably like 20 or $30. So, <laughs> so that first week or two weeks, whatever it was, um, that I worked, I basically, the union took probably 75%, uh, of that, uh, <laughs> of that, uh, of that paycheck. And that was a, uh, uh, a, a extremely rude awakening for, um, for me. <laughs> and, uh, I've pretty much hated unions ever since and, uh, been a big fan of economic freedom, but uh, it was uh, the same thing happened. A friend of mine started working there, um, about a month after I did, but he didn't work as much. He only, <laughs> he only worked, uh, maybe like five hours a week or something like that. And I remember he got his first paycheck, and it was literally, I can't remember exactly, but it was somewhere around like 32 cents, <laughs> like something like that after the union had taken out the dues and the, and the initiation fees. And, uh, he was just like apoplectic, but, uh, yeah. So ever since then, um, that, yeah, that, that was pretty much the, uh, the, the, uh, wake up call for me, you know, between the union, the unions taking the money out and then like the government taking all the money out you know, for, you know, social security and Medicare and all that stuff. Um, you know, which is, it was just like, wait a minute, I worked this hard and this is all the money I took home. Like, you know, yeah. And what good is a union if you're making minimum wage? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, I thought it was ridiculous and, but anyway, what can you do? Okay. Tim, can you give any freedom tips to the freedom family? Freedom tips. Um, you know, just, uh, I guess just try to try to keep informed. Um, just, you know, pay attention to what's going on, especially at, um, at the uh, state level and local level, pay attention to what's going on in your, in your town, in your city, in your County. 
uh, with, uh, you know, county commissioners, school boards, um, all that sort of stuff with your mayors. Uh, I know uh, more and more uh, that, you know, just on the news and whatnot, that uh, the national stuff, the stuff coming out of Washington sort of sucks all the air out of the room. And uh, with the, the sort of decimation of uh, the journalism industry, uh, a lot of, you know, smaller papers that focus more on the local stuff are having a tough time. But um, just uh, just make sure what uh, you're paying attention to what's going on in your own backyard. Um, that's um, that's stuff that goes on there is the stuff that you are uh, have mo- uh, more ability to change uh, individually or in small groups, um, more ability to stop things or to get things done or to, you know, just... Uh, you know, shine a light on things that might not be um, kosher or um, things that you know, might not be to the best interest of of your community. So just um, really try to make sure you keep track of uh, what's going on with all that stuff. That's, um, that's very important. Mm-hmm. And Tim, how can we connect with you? Uh well, not on social media, thank God. So none of that. But um, you can uh, uh, you can um, email me at uh, Heartland. Uh, my email address is uh, tbenson at heartland.org. So T-B-E-N-S-O-N at heartland.org. Um, I'm a, as you said, I'm a you know a policy analyst at Heartland. I also, we just started a a podcast for Heartland a few weeks ago. Uh, it's a book. Uh, it's an interview uh, podcast called Illiteracy. Uh, basically, just um, uh, we interview authors of newly published books about their book. Uh, more like in-depth interviews, about uh, you know sixty minutes or so. Um, like I said, we just started that. We just have a handful of episodes in the tank so far, about like six or seven. Um, there is actually a Twitter page you can follow for that. Um, it's at ill books. So I L L books, um, or you can just email me uh, if you're interested more about that podcast. Um, we've had a lot of, uh, a lot of pretty good guests so far. Bjorn Lomborg, uh, Matthew Crawford, who you might remember who wrote uh, shop class of Soulcraft. Um, we had Fergus Borderwit on last week talking about, uh, the, uh, um, the Republican Congresses during the civil war. Um, uh, we had Bradley C.S. Watson on his book about progressivism, uh, Mary Graybar on her book, uh, debunking Howard Zinn, uh, Philip Magnus, um, critiquing, uh, the New York times 1619 project. Um, so it, that's been going pretty well so far. So make sure, yeah, if you want to try to tune into that, uh, you can find it pretty much anywhere. It's just under the Heartland daily podcast feed. Um, you know, it's on SoundCloud. Uh, iTunes, Spotify, uh, you know, the Google play store, all those kinds of places. So just search for the Heartland daily podcast and, uh, uh, you'll find it there. Usually just follow that. And it usually, uh, we usually, um, release the episodes every Monday afternoon. So. Okay, Tim, thank you very much for your time. Great. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. A lot of fun. You're most welcome.